So maybe a first question would be, give us a state of just your tribe. Madison has just been designated in December, Truax Field, as the home of F-35A. Doctor, can you start? Give us an overview. Kenosha, Wisconsin is the epicenter this week of the national debate over law and order versus uh, policing uh, policies with President Trump coming on um, Tuesday and uh, Vice President, Democratic presidential, presidential candidate Joe Biden scheduled to come on Thursday. Meanwhile, uh, Governor Evers has called a special session of the legislature on nine bills he wants passed. Senate Republicans are taking their lead from State Senator Van Wangard, a retired Racine police officer on those issues and couldn't be a better time for a newsmaker with Senator Wangard. Senator, thanks very much for joining us, sir. I appreciate the opportunity, Steve. Thank you for all you do. Well, um, thank you very much. Let me ask you a question that was asked by Governor Evers, Democrats, members of the legislature's Black Caucus. Why isn't the Senate meeting, since you have eight specific bills drafted, why isn't the Senate meeting to vote on those bills right now, sir? Okay, so the bills that have been drafted, that we have drafted, that we've put out so that people can see what they are, we've started circulating them. We have, uh, we have uh, co-authorship uh, memos that have gone out uh, or will be going out today. So um, legislators from both sides of the aisle that have already signed on to our bills. Uh, Lena Taylor is one of those I've been working with over the last months and years on several of these. Because it, you understand the sausage process with getting a piece of legislation accomplished. And, you know, part of the problem is getting all the stakeholders together to make sure you don't create a piece of legislation that is going to have negative unintended consequences for somebody else. Because it doesn't do you much good to, to fix one issue and then create a bigger issue someplace else. And so a lot of times you just can't snap and get it done. Now, the governor put bills forward June 2nd, I think it was. Um, and honestly, I've been having conversations directly with the governor and his staff, um, Governor Evers, myself on the phone talking about this issue, one-on-one, -on -one, having a conversation. And we talked about the bills he had brought forward and why some of them would not. And uh, working to, um, to modify or to change a little bit some of the other ones so they would be acceptable and create the same um, clarity in how we do our policing so that it creates a better process for everybody. And the governor's been real excited about the fact that we've been working on this. I mean, I've met with him probably a couple hours, three hours on the phone over the last uh, month and a half, two months. And uh, we've also been working with all the law enforcement organizations, groups, uh, defense attorneys, Anybody that'd be a stakeholder in different parts of this legislation has been part of the conversation. So the first thing we need to do is get the conversation rolling. It's not just about running in to have a session and then a few senators talk about it on the floor. It's about getting trying to accomplish and they become a positive part of making this happen. Because if you don't have people that have buy-in, it won't work. So we need to get people with that this is going to affect, get them involved also so it's a fair process. And that, that helps get it get it over the finish line. And of course, we're working with both houses also. And we've had both houses, members of both houses, 
working on different parts of these bills, hundreds of meetings and conversations over the last months. And I don't know how many over the last several years, just on the one that deals with uh, our, uh, our use of force uh, review board. Um, and I think that's going to bring a whole different level of, of uh, trust to law enforcement and how they do what they do. Well, um, what's your timeline then? If you've been working with the governor and you've been working, you, you, you say Senator Taylor is a co-sponsor co of some of these. She's on um, almost all of them, I think, pretty close to all of them. Thank you very much for clarifying that. What's your hopeful timeline? Because you've heard the criticism, Democrats, sure. the Black Caucus, you should be in right now. What's, what's the earliest timeline for some actual committee or full Senate votes on these, sir? Well, I'm sure that that we're going to start having public hearings, and we'll have hearings on uh, different parts of these these bills. Um, I know one of the ones, one of the bills that's that's going to be coming forward. It's not in in our uh, in the eight that we've we're putting out right now, but it's a bill that's been accomplished by um, Representative Ott and Senator Teston. And that bill was a bill that was passed through the assembly unanimously uh, last session, came over to our judiciary committee that I chair, passed that unanimously. And then we got into the COVID issue and everything, so it didn't get onto the floor. Three brought, brought back has been retooled. A couple of things have been added to it that deal with personnel issues with police records and release of those records. That was added to, to uh, deal with that issue. And I think that one, will be ready uh, here pretty soon too, because they're gonna release that one out again. Um, but right now they're in the middle of a lot of election processes and stuff too. So that kind of gets things a little bit confused and the COVID creates another issue. So, and uh, I know it will it will definitely be addressed uh, by the spring session. I hope these will be the first bills off in the spring. I don't see us coming back before happen if we can get things moving and the stars will all line up and we can get consensus um on the these bills the way floor but not for political purposes and first thing i told the governor when i spoke with the governor when he says what can we do to get consensus on these bills and i said governor and I think I can tell you this. I mean, it was a personal conversation, but, but my message to him was directly with the senators that we're trying to put these these issues behind us. And secondly, to not make this a political thing. Law enforcement and making laws that affect people like that should not be done for political purpose. This should be uh, to make sure that we have public safety. We have a clear process. I don't know how many thousands of times I've said the word process since I've been in the, in the legislature, but if you don't have a good, clear process, Steve, um, and people don't know where you're, you're, you're going and people don't stay within that process, that's when you get into trouble and you get results that are not necessarily the results that should have come from the set of facts that you were dealing with. So if we get a good process, and I think that's where we're at now. I, I feel so good about this, this package that um, we're going to have very little uh, negative discussion about what we're trying to accomplish because uh, we do have people on board uh, and that are understanding what we're trying to uh, This isn't about getting getting a one-up or a gotcha on uh, on the other side of the aisle. This is about fixing things so that people have confidence in the process. 
you know, there's always going to be issues in the system, you know, and we need to address those issues when they come up. But to have confidence in the process that everybody knows what that process is, that just eliminates a whole lot of problems. Well, okay, just to clarify, because you were breaking up a little bit there, Senator, do you not expect then a vote on your uh, bills after the election be, before January 1? You really expect these to get votes after the start of next year, sir? Well, we could have, have votes before the end of the year. Um, my guess is that that's kind of iffy. We don't know where that's going to be at because I can't look in my crystal ball and tell you, you know, that we're not going to have some some bumps with with the legislation we're bringing forward and some people not agreeing or whatever. You know how that that works. But I can tell you by by spring of next year, my goal is that's my that's my drop dead date to get it done. I want to get it on on the floor and get it uh get it pushed across the line and have it become law and have the governor actually pick it up and say, our discussions that I've had with the governor, he's been very confident that we can accomplish those things and he would sign what we're trying to bring forward. So, I mean, I think that we've had agreed on everything. Um, one of the bills, and I'll just tell you one of them that I told him right out, uh, no knock search warrants being able to totally, that's not going to happen. No, if anybody who understands what a no-knock warrant is for, it's for the most dangerous situations where civilians and officers can be hurt or killed. And these are the ones where you have the methamphetamine manufacturing uh, things going on in, a, in an apartment building or, you know, you've got uh, uh, trafficking of, of children. Those type, You don't want to give them advance warning you're coming, you know, so that they can get rid of the evidence or they can secret the people that have been, been trafficked. So those no-knock warrants are created for that. And there are so many loophole or so many uh, hoops you have to jump through to be able to get those approved by the courts and everything else. Are there mistakes sometimes? Yes, there can be, you know, but if you stick to the process and I don't know what they did with the, the one where the, the one Gail was, was, uh, was, was killed. Uh, Ron and Taylor in, in, in Atlanta. Yes. But we, I don't know what all those circumstances were and what their process. Are. I know here in Wisconsin, they stick to the process. All, all my time in law enforcement, it was like, well, and I did a lot of search warrants. I, I don't think I, I might've done one no-knock that I actually did, uh, but I went on a few no-knocks and it was like, wow, I can't believe all the steps that, had, that you have to go through to get a search warrant. For that. And, you know, this is part of the process. So the governor knew that right off the bat in Hawaii and so did the attorney general, because I've had conversations with him and he agreed that this is a, a necessary thing that we need are the no-knocks. Senator, do you expect the speaker's task force to go along with your with your bills, I would hope so. Um, uh, I don't know that the task forces that that has been brought brought forward is necessary. I think we've been working on this for such a long time. We've had a lot of uh, uh, input from everybody, but if, if they see something we didn't see, uh, we sure are willing to look at things and and make adjustments. You know, if it improves the bill, I mean, that's the goal. You want to get a good piece of legislation accomplished so that you're not fixing it later and that it does what you're you're uh, attempting to accomplish. So, I mean, if if uh, the task force comes up with with things that they think are good, we're not going to wait for the task force. But if the task force comes up with ideas that we can implement and that we can put into the bill that makes it better, you know, always open for improvements on ways that, you know, I didn't think about that. OK, let's do it this way. You know, I think, I think you have to have a. Do I have you? 
Yes, sir. Welcome back, Senator. Oh, sorry about that. My computer died on me. That's okay. We we, we can make a go of it. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've got the bill draft summaries in front of me, sir, and there's eight of them. So in the interest of time, tell me the top three or four priorities of these uh, uh, of of your uh, bill draft, sir. Okay. So I think I think you know I think one of the first ones that we're looking at um, in this bill package is the use of force review board. Okay. Um, that that bill, what that's going to do is that creates a um, a board that will review any officer involved deaths, whether it's an officer who who passes or it's a citizen that that dies as a result of uh, interaction with with law enforcement. Um, this group would come in as if they were the National Transportation Safety Board when they have a plane crash or something where it's it's commercial uh, transportation. They come in and, and review things from an objective position looking at all of the evidence, the scene, interviews, et cetera. And then they look at it purely to, to determine the root cause of what happened, not for pointing fingers or for determining civil liability or criminal liability, but for determining how can we prevent this from happening again? And then creating a database that you can draw from that would help support training and working with officers and having a better handle on what law enforcement specifically ends up dealing with. And so I think this would be uh, something that could be a model, not just for Wisconsin, but it could be a national model uh, that could help other states uh, work with coordinating that. So no other state has this, Senator? Nope, they don't. Not that I'm aware of anything like like what we're, we're trying to do. Okay. Um, they do have it in other fields, so like in the medical field for surgical procedures, when somebody passes as a result of a surgical procedure or something. Okay. Uh, they have... A board that looks at what do they they do is there are there procedures are, are there issues with that is it cleanliness you know i mean all those different things when you're looking at it from the medical side what's your second most important bill sir um i think let's see second most important bill um mandatory reporting of the use of force well i uh, think providing whistleblowers i think that would be that's at the top of the list i, I think that we already see a lot of these things we already have i mean we have reporting on on to the uh, the federal government on on issues that happen with use of force that has to be reported. It's collected by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They just changed the terminology of that report. It's going to be changing, I think, at the beginning of the year. Okay. So we did some some legislation so it would be consistent with what the federal government's doing now. But it would give us a better uh, it would give us a, a better ability to be able to assess uh, issues that are going on and if we have to address. Uh, training issues, the Bureau of Training and Standards, of which, and I got to say this, Wisconsin has a, uh, a really phenomenal training system. We require 720 hours of training for our officers initially, and then when they come out of the, uh, the academy, they go to the, local, um, to the local entities, and they go into training there sometimes for a year before they're actually out on the street themselves, a field training officer. So, and then we have continued education that's required for certification for every officer every year that they have to maintain training. So they get continuous training. And this will help, this would help direct the type of training uh, that they're gonna receive and uh, be able to look at, you know, what's the value of, of each one of those, um, those modules of training. An example might be mental health issues or it might be a hands-on um, for uh, the force continuum with how we, how we utilize those things in the force continuum. Would, would your bills track officers who are more more prone to using deadly force yes uh, it would 
Yes. Okay, because the agency would have to report that to state DOJ and DOJ would have to publish that? Correct. Okay. Correct. So, so, so the idea is to be able to, to be able to not only compile that information, but create, create a report that shows how it's, how it's used and then create, create, um, instances that there's going to be different types of training maybe. And a lot of times it might be one of the bills that, that, that they were bringing forward from the governor was, um, one that would bar and outlaw chokeholds. Yes. Okay. Uh, which I did not agree with that bill. Uh, the way that it was written, because it made it sound like we've been doing chokeholds in Wisconsin forever, and it's been acceptable. I can tell you right now, I started in 1972, and they have never trained chokeholds as something uh, to get somebody under control. Now, does it mean that an officer might not have to use that if he's fighting for his life to keep control of his firearm, or that somebody's got a gun or a knife, they're going to kill somebody themselves, that they couldn't use that? So we modified that bill so that uh, we do not allow, we forbid the training of chokeholds in, in any uh, academy or in any training situation. So the message is we don't train those, but I'm not going to force an officer to make uh, make a decision on, well, should I choke this guy? I don't want to lose my job because I choked him. That's hesitation for that half a second or a quarter of a second could mean his life or somebody else's. I want him to do whatever he needs to do to get that person under control. And then, you know, especially if they're going after his firearm or something, um, like the thing that happened down in Kenosha, yes. that was a whole continuum. You saw 20 seconds in between. You didn't see the first part where uh, this fellow was physically fighting with the officers. They were rolling around on the ground. He went officer in a headlock. They tased him twice, you know. So they went through that continuum. They were following the continuum. So the rest of the story is still going to come out. So we'll see what happens with the facts. But as a retired officer, what was your response to the segment that has gone viral where the officer grabbed his shirt and then fired seven shots? What, what was your response as a retired officer, Senator? Well, I thought the headline was irresponsible. You know, victim shot seven times in the back because that really didn't. I thought, oh, my God, this is not, not good. Then you see what happens with that 20-second clip, and you see the officer trying to catch up to this guy going to his car. This guy was obviously not getting in to sit down in his car. He was pulling the door open to reach in and either get something else or to um, pick up uh, a weapon that was in there. My understanding was he had the weapon before he got to the car, uh, mm -hmm. a knife, and that's a weapon in itself. So now the officer, if this guy got there, the first thing would have been to not let him get to the car. Well, but they tried that with wrestling with him on the ground and trying to taser him, and the tasers didn't affect him for some reason. So that's got to tell you something about maybe what's in his system. I don't know, you know, because okay. a lot of times when they have medications or something like that in their system, that doesn't, doesn't allow some, the things to work properly either. And they have the strength of 10 people. But beside that, you know, then he's getting to the car. The officer's trying to grab him, center him ass to pull him back. And as he's doing that, I don't know what was going through the officer's mind, what he saw, if he saw a weapon coming up, if this guy was telling him, I'm going to kill you. I, we don't know that. And at that point, the officer saw something that he thought was going to be um, present uh, a difficulty for him and threaten his life or potentially the people in the car because they're screaming coming from the passenger in the car. There's kids in the back of the car. I mean, they just went through a bad situation, you know, fighting with them up on the hill with the gale that the, the initial call. So all this stuff is entering into what the officer's looking at. So firing seven rounds, uh, that's not unusual. 
Uh, what is unusual is that he hit him. He made contact with those rounds seven times. Usually it's only one or two because of the adrenaline's flowing. You so know, you, don't so. Know, you don't know enough yet to, to know whether that was police misconduct in that incident. Correct. correct? I mean, yeah, I mean, there's just not an, I mean, I don't, there might be other information that I'm sure the investigators have already. Okay. I'm sure that they've got stuff lined up that come out. And I know our attorney general, uh, Josh did a good job of, I think, kind of forming it all up and saying, look at, we're going to do, we're going to get all of our ducks in a row first, make sure we've covered all the bases, collect all of the evidence. And then the evidence is going to tell a story. And from that, then sometimes you don't like what the outcome is, um, but you got to get good information in so you, so you get the correct outcome, what actually should be. You know, and that's why the process is so important. Not to not to jump ahead and, and for people to take and kind of just guess or assume what might have happened. I, I would much rather wait till we see all of the evidence and and perspectives of what was there, what, what weapons were present, what was said. I mean, all that stuff's got to come out. Okay, let me ask you about another one of your bill drafts, sir. Um, protesters over the last few weeks have been uh, nationally saying, chanting, defund police. Hmm. Your bill, uh, Reference Bureau 6348, require Wisconsin municipalities to maintain law enforcement's budgets or face loss of state shared revenue why did you uh, have, why is that part of your uh, bills? Well, I think sending a message that the legislature is looking at this too, and that it's not just going to be, well, we're going to cut 50% of our, our law enforcement. That would be absolutely crazy. Like some of these municipalities have talked about doing, just doing away with police totally. Um, that would be a catastrophe. Look at what's happened out in Portland. I mean, they haven't had any law enforcement uh, control of that city for over a hundred days. Um, so for me as a citizen, I want to be safe. We don't need to have people sitting at home at their kitchen tables with their deer rifles loaded. That's not America. This is not America. We need to feel safe in our communities. So the, the, the idea here was instead of saying, we're just cutting 20 police officers, deal with it. Milwaukee's a great example for that, where they're about 350 officers short. And then the uh, mayor says, we're cutting another 60 guys. Yet the crime rate in Milwaukee has skyrocketed. The, the homicides have skyrocketed. And, you know, who wants to live in that type of an environment? I mean, and so the people that are living there are the people that are stuck there. And they're the people that want the law enforcement there the most. They want police protection. They want to have officers in their community. We've got six community policing houses here in Rosane. We started with one back in 1993. And we've taken back a dozen neighborhoods because of those police-oriented houses that we put there and officers assigned to those immediate neighborhoods, they're not an occupying force. They become part of, of the fabric of that community that they're directly working with. So the people that live in those, those that 15th block radius or whatever, have the officer's cell phone numbers. And if something comes up that they have, they call the officer directly and the officer problem solves it and plugs the people into what resources they need. So it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, a, I think, a, a melding of, of law enforcement and the community so that instead of having just two officers or four eyeballs looking to see what's going on, you now have four or five, six hundred eyeballs that are working to improve their own environment. And this has worked so successfully for us here. Mount Pleasant, uh, they uh, brought theirs up here just a few years back, and they've had just so many successes with it. And it becomes a a community meeting place 
and it becomes someplace where people can really see what law enforcement is all about and what they do. Officers don't get up in the morning and make the decision they're going to go out and make all kinds of arrests or they're going to hurt people. They want to go and work with people to try to be a problem solver and solve their, their issues. How, how worried are you, sir, about counter protesters coming up saying we need to defend uh, property, et cetera, um, armed maybe with an AK-15? Uh, are you worried about that growing trend? Well, it'd be an AK-47 or thank an AR-15 or an yes, AR-15. Thank, thank you for um, the right correction. I don't think we need to have that, especially, you know, I mean, this situation happened down in Kenosha. I mean, we had people that were um, protecting their their business, which um, lawfully they can do if they're on their property and they own the property. They can stand there and do it. But where it gets muddy, um, you can't just shoot, start shooting at people because you think they're going to break out windows in your building. Now, if there's people in the building and they're throwing Molotov cocktails, that might be a different situation. That's something where some people's lives are challenged. Like this thing on Portland where they came and, and built a fire at the residence of the mayor and they were going to burn the whole place down with people in it. I mean, that could have been something where people could have taken and they could have used deadly force uh, just to protect themselves. Um, it's a little different. The Castle Doctrine allows you to protect yourself and your business. I wrote that piece of legislation. And it also protects you in your car. If somebody's going to carjack you, um, you can exercise that that uh, that doctrine or in your home. But the idea isn't to see how many people we can hurt. The idea is to prevent that from happening. And we don't need to have people walking around with long guns and, and threats back and forth. We don't need that. If you're going to have a discussion and you're going to come to the table, you don't come with Molotov cocktail components in your knapsack and and a long gun strung over your back. You come there with the intent to have a discussion to try to uh, at least come to some contention where you can agree and maybe agree to disagree on things. I mean, this is what it's about. It's about being able to sit down and have a conversation. But if you don't come to the table and you don't have a conversation, you accomplish nothing. Does it help the healing and the, and the re and reconciliation process for President Trump to come on a Tuesday and the uh, Democratic presidential candidate scheduled to come on a Thursday? Uh, does that contribute to the national debate and progress and reconciliation? Well, I think that, you know, Joe wasn't going to come out until after Labor Day. And I think he was looking at his poll numbers and he made the decision, I better get down to Kenosha because I don't think he's going to do it until after. But I think president coming here kind of pushed him to, to do that. We'll see what happens Thursday. But I think that you're right. I think that, I think that we're having a conversation now and we're having a conversation that, you know, we don't like this conversation because this is not America where we have people fighting in the streets like that. But it's about, I think, having a good conversation on how can we solve what people's perceptions are of other people. I mean, I personally, you know, think about people of color that are friends of mine. I had to really think because I don't think about them as somebody that's a person of color. They're a friend of mine. They're family. When I get to know somebody, they get a hyphen and they get my last name because they're like family because you build a relationship. And this is where I think we failed in a lot of, a lot of ways that we don't have people sitting down talking and building relationships. And this is what our communities are built. You look at what's happened in Kenosha. 
when we lost American Motors Corporation and then they raised all those buildings, it looked like Berlin in 1945, like a bombed out shell. And AMC was the one that did everything. It took care of everything. You know, you wanted something, you went to AMC, they gave it to you. Nobody had to do that. But then AMC went away and all of a sudden it was three, four years of just being an armpit. And all these little businesses said, wait a minute, we can change this. And they formed CABA, the Kenosha Area Business Association, and other groups. And they took back their community and really built an awesome community. And you see that in southeastern Wisconsin, just like with Foxconn. And I think the casino actually is what drove southeastern Wisconsin to get together and talk about when we had that debate about having a casino down here. Everybody was talking to each other. How can they help each other to be successful? And then when the casino went away, they said, well, we can still talk to each other. Gee whiz, this works. Then Foxconn came and it wasn't about, okay, I want everything in my county. It was, hey, we've got a perfect spot for you, but it's in Kenosha. And Jim Cruiser and Jonathan Delagrave were on the phone talking to each other daily, multiple times with opportunities coming to Southeastern Wisconsin. And it wasn't about who's going to get the biggest thing here or the best thing. It's what can we do to make both of our communities strong? And this needs to be our message. It needs to be a message of hope that people that are struggling every day just to feed their kids and maybe go on a vacation and have a decent job and a, you know, a decent retirement. I mean, this is the American dream. Everybody has that opportunity. I don't care who you are. You have the opportunity to have that. So we need to make sure that can happen. Just two final questions, sir, because I do want to respect your time. I'm going to use the national term because I don't have a better one. How many, quote, bad apples, close quote, are there uh, in uh in America's police force, officers who may be too prone to uh, use deadly force? Well, it's probably easier to, um, it's probably easier to cover something like that where somebody doesn't see it right away if you're in a really large department. I mean, I'm talking like a New York City department or Los Angeles where you have 10 or Chicago, where you got 10 or 15,000 police officers. It's probably a little easier for that to go under the radar for a while. But I could tell you in any of our communities here in Wisconsin, even Milwaukee, that's got about 1,500, they're supposed to have 1,900 officers. You don't last. If you're, if you're somebody that tends to treat people one way or the other, oh, that's noticed right away. And I think that officers, at least in, in my department, um, I don't remember ever having to admonish an officer because he mistreated somebody. Um, or if we had situations where uh, we had somebody that would routinely, you know, uh, mistreat people because they were people of color or, or the other way, you know, or, or people of officers of color treating somebody else, you know, from the opposite, you know, poorly. So I think it's a training issue is, it's really a huge part of it and confidence in the community and the community coming back. I think that's what really helps make things happen and having a command structure that's going to support them. You know, uh, and as long as the officers are following the protocols and the policies and procedures and doing things correctly, we need to stand alongside, not behind these officers, but alongside of them to make sure that the officers are not uh, misused for political purposes, but that it, it, it's the processes work that if an officer does something wrong, they need to take their lumps. Absolutely. Okay. And, and not be on suspension and just, you know, long term pay forever but they need to take their lumps and, and whatever happens, happens. <laughs> but if they're doing stuff right, we, we wanna make sure that they know that the community is alongside of them and that they understand the difficulties that they have to do every day to go out and, and serve. Then the, final, 
the final question, all the special interest groups, the governors, the Democrats, uh, the Black Caucus, do they have your word that you expect some Senate votes on your on on your bills by the spring session? Oh, I, I listen, I am. I've been working on something, like I said, for years uh, through our our use of force or our, our use of force review board or our officer involved shooting board. Yes, um, that's been on the drawing board since uh, way back in 2015 or 2016. 2017, we had a conference here at Wing Spread and down in Racine. Michael Bell is the one who brought it forward and helped to bring this thing forward. His son lost his life uh, as a result of a death in Kenosha by an officer. Um, he's been very vocal about his death, but he's kept him separated and purely working to have this be something that can be a positive to, to help resolve those. Um, I can tell you, we're, we are through draft eight and it's ready. That's why we're releasing it. And my expectation is to get it done and get this to the governor's desk to get it signed. Yes. Very good. State Senator Van Wangard, a Republican from Racine, represents the 21st District, working on a package of bills that he just said he expects votes at least by the spring session. Senator, thanks very much for your time, sir. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate the, I mean, I'm sorry for the interruption. That's okay. That's <laughs> a big reason of technology. Thank you, sir. <laughs> thanks, Thank you. Steve. Have Bye. a great day. This Bye. program Bye. is a production of Wisconsin Eye, an independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit media network with a mission to inform, educate, and engage the citizens of Wisconsin. Wisconsin Eye is the nation's first and only independently funded state civics broadcast network, providing gavel to gavel access to government proceedings and events at the state capitol.